America, in its core, is a racist nation. And so there are things that people believe that they can't help really believe in because they don't even know. They don't know that they're believing something. They think they're knowing something that's true. And, you know, there's a difference between belief and knowledge. So I'm a huge book nerd. Actually, I should probably correct that. I'm just a nerd at this point because I love books. I love comic books, superhero movies. And no, I do not know what the inside of a locker looks like. But given my affinity for the English language and for reading, I am absolutely beside myself because of today's guest on the podcast. Now, he's written 55 books in 28 years, one of which was Devil in a Blue Dress, which was, of course, made into a movie starring Denzel Washington and Don Cheadle. He also recently worked with the late, great John Singleton on his show Snowfall, which I've heard amazing things about. He is L.A. to the socks, though. And I'm just so thrilled that Walter Mosley joins me on this episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So it's very um, appropriate that I'm in the company of such a brilliant, prolific writer, because last night, um, as of the taping of this podcast, I was up to about 4.30 in the morning writing. I'm trying to finish this magazine piece for The Atlantic. And I've often told people who aren't writers, and I'm curious as to hear your thoughts on what you would say about what the writing process is like for you. I don't have children, but I imagine if I had children and knew what giving birth was like, that's what I would compare writing to because it's, it's pay. I know the look on his face is, 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 is is like, what are we, where are we going with this? The reason I say that is because there, there's joy at the completion, but going through it and maybe not all nine months or through all stages of writing to make the comparison, but there's a pain to this process that, um, you know, for years now that I've seen whether I'm writing something that's a thousand words, 3000 words, 5000 words, 10,000 words, it's that same pain. But to me, you have to love that painful part of the process in order to really love writing. Huh. And you can go ahead and just smack down everything I just said, Walter Mosley, but I just thought about that. How as, could I uh, smack it down? I mean, yeah. that's how you feel. I, I, can, I, I could say you don't feel like that. But is like it painful that. for you? I mean, you've written yeah, so I, you, many books. You, you compare it to childbirth, and I'm very close. I just compare it to sex. Ooh. So, In what way? <laughs> well, the way it sounds. It's like, well, you know, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I, I, I get up and write every morning. And somebody says, well, how do you get that discipline? I said, well, if I got up and had sex every morning, would you ask me how I got that discipline? They go, well, no. I said, yeah, well, that's it. You know, so it's it's close. Childbirth, you know, sex and childbirth. Well, sex does, you, you know, in some yeah, many have, cases does lead to childbirth. But no, no, I really like writing. And um, I, I don't think it's ever painful. It, like, it depends on who you're dealing with. I mean, somebody's like, you know, I don't like this. I don't like that. And they want to, you know, being all editing and stuff. Of course, I've been doing it long enough that I just say, well, okay, fine. I'm not doing what you're saying. So you could keep talking, but I'm still going to do it this way. And so it's it, even that's not a problem anymore. Do you write a certain amount of hours per day or? I try to, you know, it's somewhere between two and three. You know, I try to do three. You know, sometimes other things get in the way, but I, um, no, it's it, every day, seven days a week. Well, not to put, uh, I guess, myself on your your proverbial writing couch, but to do exactly that. Uh, I'm still one of those writers who um, I write by feel in the sense of I have to feel a certain way to start writing. Like uh, uh, there was a writer that I, I still idolize, a sports writer, Gary Smith, who wrote for Sports Illustrated for many years. And when I asked him his advice on writing, he said, the worst thing you can do is sit down at a computer or typewriter, if that's your thing, when you don't have anything to write because it becomes frustrating because you're staring at a blank screen. Now, granted, as a newspaper journalist, I'm used to being on some kind of deadline. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, uh, not that obviously you aren't, but I don't want the feeling of sitting down and feeling like I don't have all my thoughts together in my mind or I don't know where I'm going with it because it's, otherwise it's hard for me to write. I mean, hmm. what what is your sort of process? So do you... Do you do you write like every day? Or do you, do I don't write every day. Because well, you see, the thing, the, I, I, you know, because you were talking about the couch, it was, it's, it's, that's a, a really good metaphor. Because I, I, 
I, I liken writing to psychoanalysis. And, and what that is, is, you know, for an hour a day, you sit and you, fr you free associate, you know, some therapist may or may not say anything. And then the next 23 hours, that stuff is percolating in the unconscious. And then when you lie down on the couch again the next day, all this new stuff is there that you had no idea would be there. Um, because I write every day. I think this is true. Uh, whenever I sit down to write the next day, there's always something there. There's always something to write. So it's not a... It, 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 that in that way, it's not an issue for me. Yeah, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but do you ever experience writer's block? I I don't. You know, I'm starting to think you're superhuman. <laughs> no, no, I ju I just don't. But you know, it, yeah. it, but you know, writer's block is you know, writer's block is like a thing. Like writer's block is saying, well, do you ever get sick? Well, are you, are you talking about having a cold? Are you talking about having cancer? You know, because you know, if 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 for instance, you just can't write about this subject you could always write about that subject over there but you know if you have like a deep psychological trauma that's stopping you from like that creative activity from the kind of stories you need to tell then you actually might need therapy or medication or something you know well um <laughs> no i mean i i definitely think that it's such a sensitive process that it for everybody is different but you know what i'm gonna try your way because i don't think i've ever done that before i mean the last time i think i was writing every single day is when i was a beat writer you know, when mm -hmm. I was covering like a particular team mm -hmm. or a particular mm -hmm. league because you had to write every single day. But now that I'm in more creative forms of writing, I'm not used to writing creatively every single day. So I guess it's a matter of sort of retraining um, that muscle to some yeah, degree. I, yeah, I think I, you know, most people I know get a lot out of it. And I, you know, there are some people who, you know, they're special and they can only write in certain kind of situations. George Simenon, the French uh, mystery writer, he would, he'd be walking around and, and he would say, oh, I feel a novel coming on. And he would go to this room above his garage and he would write until he was finished. Mm. The book. The whole book? The whole book. He wow. would just write until he finished. But, you know, that's what his head was like. Mm -hmm. um, now, you not just you don't just write novels. Um, you know, you've written for television. And even though some of your novels have obviously been turned into films, um, a lot of people are very familiar with Devil in a Blue Dress. But your one of your more recent projects was Snowfall. Yes. Um, and why don't you talk about uh, this television series, uh, which is about the drug trade in L.A. in the what mid to late eighties or yeah, early nineties so or early eighties? Eighty two, eighty three. Yeah, it's like an it's, it's it's it it what it's it's there. You know, uh, uh, you know, it was created you know by uh, uh, you know John Singleton and Erica Mario. And the, the, the idea was to start from the very moment that crack starts and to kind of follow it, to follow it as it impacted the black community as a drug, also uh, as a business, which was a very violent business, also what that relationship was to the police, to the CIA, uh, to uh, you know international politics, to the White House, all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think uh, John's notion was to to follow it for you know the, the that first five years, which was so like you know uh, upsetting, mm -hmm. and then maybe follow it someplace else. But but that was uh, and it's 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 a it's a good show. It's a good show, and, and it's uh, it's very it's wonderful because it's the, the the way the show is structured is is kind of um, the way it happens. So you have all these you know uh, young, mostly unknown actors. Uh, you know, who, who've come in with all of this energy to want to do this thing, you know, instead of selling crack, they're, you know, acting of, like people selling crack. But it's, uh, it's kind of wonderful. So how did you get involved with the project? Well, I, you know, years ago, four years ago, John called me and he said, Walter, I'm in this room. And he said, you know, and, and all these people around me and they, they don't necessarily know what I know. And so I need somebody in there who knows what I know so I can turn in, in case I'm really doing something wrong, he's going to tell me. And I said, okay. <laughs> You know, like I hadn't done, I mean, I, I'd written a movie for television, but like that was it. And and uh, so I hadn't done anything like that before. And, and I was in the room in a couple of years. I was the advisor, you know, just sitting there behind John and, you know, kind of talking that way. And then last year I, I wrote a script and this year I wrote another script and, or a script and a half, actually. And that was that. Now, I mean, a lot of people were um, obviously impacted by John Singleton's death. Uh, definitely one of the most, um, you know, brilliant and and 
just versatile filmmakers I think that we've ever seen. It still blows my mind that he was in his early 20s when he put together Boys in the Hood, which is scary. Um, what was it like uh, for you working uh, with John? Well, you know, John is kind of a wonderful guy. He's like, he's like, you know, the guy next door. Like you walk out and he's there like mowing his lawn or something. And you say, hey, John. And he goes, hey, man. And then he has a story to tell you, you know. And, of course, John's stories were, you know, kind of more fabulous than the guy next door. But, but, but he told it just the same way. When, I remember one day he says, I was, hey, Walter, I was in my boat. I was out, you know, like about 20 miles past Catalina. And I was in my boat. And a blue whale passed under my boat, man. And he's like, he was so excited. It's like, wow. And I was too. I said, like, God, that's wonderful, you know. Uh, and you know, but but it, but the way he says it, he, he doesn't. Yeah, because some a lot of people, especially in Hollywood, they, you know, they say things like, which what they're really trying to say is, I'm better than you. That's and no matter what they say, you know, it's you know, like it's I am Groot, you know, again and again. And uh, but but. You know, John is—he was—he was just a regular guy. He really loved people. He really loved black people. He really loved L.A., South Central L.A., and 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 those are the stories that you know that he was going to tell, and and those are the people that he loved. So, he, it, and you and you felt that from him. Ultimately, what was the story or the statement that you guys want to tell with with Snowfall? Well, I—I I mean, beyond just you know the 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 drug industry part and the, and the connective tissue, but like what was. What to you was that underlying story that, well, that needed to be told? It's, well, it's, you know, the, one of the things is it's a Los Angeles story. One of the things that John and I, I think, agreed on is that any story you tell in America that's about black people doing something, it's a new story because nobody ever tells those stories. This is, this is about L.A. This is about, you know, people, not good people, not bad people, not villains, not heroes, but just, they're just people who are like, you know, living a life. It's, it's you know, not unlike, you know, uh, Coppola doing The Godfather, you know. It's like, yeah, you might like these people or not like these people. They're, they're criminals, but, you know, in, in America, so is the CIA, you know, making money off crack, you know, raging a war in Nicaragua. So, like, it, it's, it's, a, it's about, a, it's a place and, and, and who, who peoples that place, who, who populates those streets, that world. Yeah. yeah. Now, you've written um, 55 books in, over the span of the last uh, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the majority, a huge percentage of those have been crime you know, mystery, drama. 40% of yeah, uh, have been, mysteries and crime. Yeah, have been mysteries yeah. and crime. Why were you drawn to that genre in particular? I wasn't particular. I, I'd written a book called uh, Gone Fishing. You know, it, it was about Easy and Mouse. It was about in the South. It was not a crime novel, really. I mean, a crime happens, but crimes happen in most novels. But, you know, nobody wanted to buy it. There was this, you know, you go to people and say, well, it's really good writing. We think it's really wonderful. We want to see another book. But it's about two young black men coming of age in the South. Uh, you know, and, every, and as everybody knows, uh, white people don't like black people. Black women don't like black men. And black men don't read. So who would read your book? You know, they were wrong about all those things. But, uh, but they still published me. And so then I just wrote a mystery, Devil in a Blue Dress, and uh, with the same characters 10 years later. So people were, they were... Saying that with that kind of conviction, that that was why they didn't want to, you know, kind of get involved in, in in your, or or didn't initially want to publish or had some reluctance about publishing you. Is that, you know, black black women don't like black men, black people don't read books. Well, you know, I mean, any business you're in, yeah, you're in a business, so you're supposed to make money, and. There's another underlying things. You should be aware of the market that you're dealing with. Uh, but you have people who are, who are publishing books that uh, black men aren't buying and reading because they either leave black men out completely or, or, or they, they say things about them that are not true. And so, so you, this publishing industry is saying, well, these people don't read books. Said, well, they don't read the books you have, but if they might read this book, you know, but they, they, were, they really weren't able to tell the difference. Mm. And it wasn't until uh, Terry McMillan really uh, exploded back then uh, that you, you started, they, they said, oh, you mean these black women are reading books about black women? They seem to really like that. That's interesting, you know? And then so when I wrote the mystery, Devil in a Blue Dress, they went, well, maybe Walter's the same. I don't know. And, you know, it worked. How do you think the publishing industry 
uh, perceives, you know, black readers now? I mean, they, maybe not to that extreme, but what do you think their perception is is of black readers now? Well, well, I think that, I mean, you know, it's one of the fastest growing audiences for literature. So they're really happy about it. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if they they think about black readers or care about them or anything like that. If they stop reading books, they'll stop publishing the books. I'll tell you that. But, um, but younger people, you know, pe- people who come up basically under hip hop, you know, whereas all of a sudden, not only do you listen to music that black people wrote, but black people are actually performing that music and it's about black culture. And so you have a, a giant awareness in America of that culture. I'm often fascinated by, in particular industries, how they are so convicted um, about what they believe black consumers want. And they have no reference point none that can be an educated reference point to decide i mean if it, it, it's like hollywood especially with the um you know recent kind of boom of of, of black films being made like a, a black panther for example it's like they figured out that black people go to the movies i'm like well and that we you know like superheroes and all these other things it just seems like the industry in where there be movies entertainment that they're always late to the party about what black consumers actually want well, I, I think that they don't really feel that they have to. I, I, they understand, for instance, that uh, 25% of the people who walk into theaters are black people. They know that. But they hadn't felt for a very long time, and I think this is very deep in American, the American psyche, that they had to service those people. That if indeed, if you paid more attention to them, you would actually do better in a business sense and have, you know, more, more uh, these people liking you more. But it's, it's hard, you know, because, you know, America in its core is a racist nation. And so there are things that people believe that they can't help really believe in because they don't even know. They don't know that they're believing something. They think they're knowing something that's true. And, you know, there's a difference between belief and knowledge. One of the things that you've said before that I love is that a man's bookcase will tell you everything that you'll ever need to know about him. So if somebody saw some of the books uh, on your bookshelf, what would they assume or know or could glean about you? You know, that's a it's a it's a very hard question I mean, because, you know, some people like just have a, a bookshelf and you and you know they'll you'll see some like you know you might see there's a whole bunch of romances and then a couple of cozy mysteries and then a cookbook and something else well you get a pretty good idea of who this is you say well this is probably a woman and but and, and but it, they certainly have this that this romance sensibility that's but you you got a person like me you know i have like in in one room somewhere i have 40,000 comic books uh, I, I have hundreds and hundreds of of like you know novels and books about you know, philosophy and and, and 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 books about science, you know, kind of all over the place. And I I think that probably if you spent enough time going through all my books, you would get an understanding of who I am. But it would be hard for me to tell, only because there's so many of them, and I'm moving them out continually. I get books and I move. I, if if I buy a book, I read the book, I give the book away. Like I because I can't keep it yeah well i always think books are meant to be shared too that's one of the best gifts you can give somebody if it's a book that you love that has meant something to you passing you know that on books that i'm finished with i tend to donate to the library because i feel like this way a bunch of people hopefully can enjoy what these books mean and 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 what and understand what they have um in particular meant to me now, despite how successful you've been, um, one of your um, recent works, uh, John Woman, uh, I think was passed up by nearly 20 publishers or uh, passed up by a, a, lot. a whole lot of them. I don't oh. know if it was 20 or, but it was, it, it was a lot. It was amazing to me. I'd been written, I'd been right working on the book for 20 years. And so I, I had this book. I, it's, you know, a literary novel, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, or a, a, a book of ideas. And, I would, I brought it to people and they would just say, "Oh uh, no, uh, this is you know not a good book. This book won't work." And I'm, and I was I said I'm said look, but I wrote it, so you're gonna s- sell a certain amount of books no matter what, you know. And they were like, "Well, yeah, but but you know it could be so much better." And, and, and you know, and then really like 
and I got into all these publishers, and they all told me no. And then the the absolute best publisher for this book, uh, Grove Atlantic, uh, you know, Morgan Intrigan, you know, the, the the publisher said, "Oh yeah, Walter, we'll publish it." He said, "I think you could do some editing." He said, "But if you want me to publish it the way it is, I'd be happy to do it like that too." You know, and it was it was wonderful actually. You know, it, you felt like. You know, uh, it was almost one of those California things. Like, you know, it, it, it found its own level, you know. But how does that make you feel, though, when, you, when you're a proven commodity mm-hmm. and yet um, people are passing up on something that you've poured a lot of your energy and heart into? Like you said, you've been working on this book for years. Mm-hmm. How does that make you feel? Well, it, it you know, I understand. I'm not. It doesn't bother me because I know I'm always pushing the envelope. It would be like, you know, John Wayne one day starring in a movie wearing a dress. Nobody would want to go to that movie. Nobody would want to make that movie. You know, Jerry Lewis decided to make a, a movie of, of uh, uh, was, God, was it the bellhop or the something, something like that. And it, it was him, but he wasn't going to say anything in the whole movie. And nobody, nobody made that movie. He had with his own money to make that movie. It was an extraordinary success. But, you know, it could be bad. Uh, a Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens had to publish that on his own. I, I think that if you're pushing limits, you have to expect people to be saying, I don't know about that. Now, wait a second. Uh, could you write Easy Rollins? You know, and, and, you know, I accept that, you know, and if you're not pushing limits and you're not running into that, then you're probably writing the same book over and over again. Well, so how do you push yourself? I mean, because you could have, because I, I think you went through a period where Easy Rollins, like, you stopped writing that character. Yeah, for about for, six years. For about six years. years. Yeah. So how is it that you don't get sucked into going back to that same book or those same, you know, what's familiar and what's been successful. Well, you know, when you say sucked into, it means that when, you know, you don't have any money and the publisher, well, I'll pay you for this, but you're not doing it. And I, I, I managed to avoid that, you know, it, it only because why am I going to like be an art artist and, and, but, but act like I'm on a production line. You know what I mean? It, it just doesn't make sense. Like, you know, I could do something else, you know, really, honestly. Well, I, I, it reminds me of something a producer said to me where um, he, w- in talking about television, he was like, well, it's two types of, of shows or, you know, even networks that you have. You have the, the network that's trying to be McDonald's, which is a billion serve, and you have the network or TV show that's trying to be the cute boutique that, uh, or the cute little bistro in the corner that everybody loves, but they're never going to do the volume and make the money of a McDonald's. So which one do you want to be happy with? You like that you can do both. But sometimes you can't. Well, never, never can you, because you know, money, money in a in, in a in capitalism is is almost always lowest common denominator. You know, it's like the the most people who are going to buy this thing. You know, and, and so that that leaves almost every artist out, because you know a lot of people, because a lot of times you're going to say things that make people mad. You know. And and when you say you do things like that, you know, like I you know, I, I I go give talks and and almost every talk I'll say, well, you know, I don't believe in the existence of white people, and people look at me and they go, what do you mean? I said, well, what's a white person? Where's white country? What's white language? What's you know what's any of this stuff? If you looked at England, there were there were ten races on in Britain, you know, uh, up until maybe the eighth ninth century, like and they they were completely different races. They didn't they didn't think they came from the same place at all. You know, and, uh, you know, but that, but that, it's just true. No, but if you're going to say something like that, you know, you're not going to be McDonald's, you know. That's like saying put a whole bunch of habanero peppers on, on every hamburger. And they say, no, no, you're not going to sell that, man. Was it hard for you to not compare everything to Devil in a Blue Dress in terms of success or well, the way I, it registered? I mean, you've had a lot of successful books, but do you, how do you, what is success for you? Ultimately. Well, it's writing books. I, li- I love I love writing books and, and other things. I like writing plays and, and screenplays and short stories. And, you know, I, I like writing. And, and, you know, I never compare anything to devil. You know, it's devil is devil. I mean, it, it's there and it's fine. And and all the other Easy Rollins books, I don't think it's the best of the Easy Rollins books. Uh, you know, and the, there's Easy Rollins. A lot of people say, well, why don't you just keep writing about him? Well, you know, because I get bored. And then, and then the books aren't good. So I write about somebody else. You know, or something else. What made you bring him back? Oh, you know, I had stopped writing because when I got to Blonde Faith, I, I, I was I, I thought this book is fine, 
but it's it's not a lot different than the book before it. And the next book I would think about would be a lot like it. And so I just said, well, and and even almost unconsciously, when Easy when is like dies or looks like he dies at the end of the book, I didn't even know I was going to write that that page until I wrote it. And I wrote, it, I went, wow, he he's dead. Should I get rid of that? And I thought, no, I guess that must be what I wanted, you know. And I and I just you know published it, and. I realized, though, five years later, that that was the end of my father's era, my father's kind of active era, and that anything that I wrote about black people in California from then on, Southern California, was going to have to be from my point of view. And that's when I said, hey, I can write about the Sunset Strip in the late 60s, because I was there, you know. And, and then I went, okay, now I can write again. It was just like, all right. And and I keep I'm writing an Israel's book now, and it's lots of fun. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, when can people expect that book? By the way, I, f- I forget. I think it's like a year and a half from now, okay. or a year or something like that. So, well, how much do you take into account as you're writing? Kind of the times that uh, you're writing for that, for example, with that character, you're writing for a specific time frame or a specific era, rather, as you said, mm-hmm. your father's era. How much do you take into account the time we're in now, in terms of what you address or how you kind of unfold certain plots or certain devices do you take into account today when you're writing even though you're writing in the past well you know i i it, it would be more true like when i was writing uh the the book 47 young adult about you know the young slave boy li- living on a plantation in georgia in the 1840s because then you really kind of have to there was a you have to bridge something between now and then that you know is it the same isn't the same but one of the interesting things now is that I'm writing about the, these characters, and there are people, you know, you know, my age or around my age are reading it, and they're saying, oh, yeah, like, I remember, I remember back then that, you know. But then you have younger people saying, oh, yeah, that's, that's my, my grandmother did that, or my mother did that, or, you know, and, 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 and then you could say, oh, well, that's where that comes from. You know, and you know, of course, there's a there's a there's a sense of style that uh, you know black people had in like you know I mean really I mean, we because of music we we dominated the 20th century just completely from one end to the other and and that brought a sense of style a, a sense of talking a, sen- a sense of you know grace that you know people just love reading it you know today just because they say what this helps me to understand myself mm-hmm. or or my potential. I feel like I know the answer to this, but as an interviewer, you should never presume that. But is there a book, only because you, you write so much, but is there a book that's like deep, deep inside of you somewhere that you want to write but still haven't written yet? No. I knew isn't. you were going to say that. <laughs> it's no, like you, write, I, you write way too often. I, I, I write the books I want to write. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, at some point, you know, I'm going to run out of time. So then, then I'll say, oh, there's I want to do this, but I don't think I ever do it. You know, but... No, I I just you know I love I love writing and you know and I love you know addressing different kind of issues and points and stories you know and and again a lot like John you know I like I like talking about my people you know like and how they fit in the world you know and and that's uh, that's really fun. Well, maybe maybe I shouldn't have said a book, but is there perhaps a screenplay or a different form of writing of something that's deep down that you. You know, because uh, that's a different process when you're writing for TV or you're writing a film or even a play. But is there something there that you like to that you know you've been harboring inside that you like to execute at some point? Well, I, I no, all the the well, no, the one. There's two different things. There's mm-hmm. television and then there, there's film. Right. You know, in television, it's it's really a collaborative process. There's you and about 150 other people who are like making a decision about what that final thing is going to be. And you know, at times you look at it and say, "I'm pretty sure I wrote that," though it looks so different than what I wrote. Right. You know, there's that. You know, but but also, um, uh, and then but in in film, you know, that is actually different. You're doing it, you know, on your own, more or less by yourself. People come in and edit it, but it's it's, it's not as collaborative. And I've written all those things I want. It's just that nobody's ever made them. So. You know. <laughs> well, but TV though is that hard for somebody like you who's used to being, who's used to having so much authority and control over, you know, what you write. Of course, you work with a book editor, but as you said, with TV, you have you have a lot of people, a lot of cooks trying to be in the kitchen. No, it's true, and yeah. and you know, and when I'm in a writer's room, and I feel that I that I have no authorship 
I just quit. You know, I just say, okay, and I leave. And, you know, in the snowfall room, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun. It's, a, it's a, you know, there's, there's arguments here and there. All of us write, when, when you finally get a script to write, you're going to be saying things that, you know, that they, they aren't saying, you know, and, you know, that's, you know, and it's fine, you know, I, you know, and I don't mind the collaboration, but mainly because I write novels. And so when I'm writing my novel, that's, I have my own authorship there. So that's, that's good enough. Mm. Now, um, you, uh, you're somebody who, you know, I think people can glean to some degree how you feel about, you know, certain issues and topics uh, based off your, your writing. But having, you know, for this interview, looked at some of uh, other interviews you've done, um, you have a lot of takes on some different topics. I don't mean to reduce them to calling them takes, but you have a lot of interesting theories and, and opinions about some serious issues. Like one of the ones I came across was the fact that you favor, it sounded like you were saying that you favored all drug legalization. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. why, not, it's not just say marijuana or whatever, but you favor making drugs completely legal. Yeah, you know, okay. I, you know, and and when I when I say legal, it's like it's like it, it it's like like opioids are legal, right? You right. A, a doctor gives them to you, and you know, it, and I'm not trying to say that you know, so you should go like should, should be able like in the old days, you should be able to go to a, a store and say, well, give me a pound of cocaine and a half a pound of heroin. You know, you, at one time you could do that. No, I don't want that. But but I but you, if you have a place where that that people are doing drugs so rampantly and so many people are addicted, so many people are dying. Doesn't it make more sense to say, okay, you can do it, but you have to do it here. You have to do it under our purview and we have to supply it. And then at so... One, you're not getting, you know, getting overdoses, you know, you, you know, people who understand the, the, you know, the ebbs and flows of that. And also at the same time, they're always offering before you leave, listen, if you would like to stop this, we're willing to help you because the money we're making off you, we're not going to spend to help you get off of it. I, like that, you know, that's like a great thing, right? You know, listen, I have like lots of friends, my friend Walter Bernstein, but also Cary Grant and these other people, uh, they did LSD therapy when in the 50s. You know, and it's like, you know, it didn't kill them. They, and when you talk to them about this, they say, you know, I learned a lot when I was doing that LSD therapy. You know, so I, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against drugs. <laughs> you can do drugs. I mean, it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm against the, the, the world of snowfall because people are murdering each other. But, I, but it's not the drugs that's bothering me. It's the fact that people are murdering each other. As a, you know, race, um, you know, racism is probably always going to be an issue in this country. But uh, mm. when you write about race now versus maybe what you, how you wrote about it in your novels 10 years ago, what's changed about the way you kind of view and way you write about race now or or has anything changed well you know i'll i'm gonna tell you a story i was in the west village in, in new york i don't know 10 years ago i don't know what it was i'm i'm, I'm on the corner and you know it's, it's a neighborhood a lot of different people and, and, and there are a lot of gay people in, in, in there and there was a young gay man white guy he's like 20 and he's handing out these pamphlets. He's saying, come to the gay rave. Come to the gay rave. Come to the gay rave. And, you know, he's just handing them out. And there's a young black man just about the same age watching him really seriously. Watching, watching. It was so serious that I stopped. I went, wow, what, what's going to happen? Like, this is, this is a little scary. And the black guy gets the, the you know, the, the little pamphlet and he reads it really closely. And then he says, hey, hey, man, tell me something. And the white guy, smiling, says, what? what? He said, any bitches up in here? And the, the white guy looks at him, and he smiles, and he shakes his head. He said, no, brother, just us niggas. And I was like, wow. Like, that's a change in America. It's a change in identity. Is that a good change? <laughs> well, it depends on who you are. He, these two young men saw themselves as outcasts and used that word to define themselves. Now, I didn't see them like being mad. Nobody was pulling out guns, trying to stab each other. They're doing this because black guy said, all right. You know, when he said that, he said, okay, I'm ready. I'll, I'll be there. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting, if you look directly at it, America is transforming especially young america to having an identity with people 
not just like you people over there, it feels good, blah, blah, blah. It's us. And that, when I, when I, whenever I see it, I'm like, that's really, that's really great. I'm really, I'm, ha- I'm happy that there, there, that identity is, is, is finally starting to meld in America. See, I'm not there yet. <laughs> you know, and uh-huh. it, it, I, I see this, uh, but I understand what, what you're saying because, um, young people, they have a much different way of, of how they look at race and how they look at identity than certainly from, you know, my generation. I'm in my early forties. So it was much. You child. I know. <laughs> well, I, I feel older every day, trust me, but I have a much <laughs> different way of, of sort of looking at it. And I remember this is, you know, years ago when I sort of understood that how that identity was melding. Um, yeah, you, I was at a stoplight and in the car next to me, it was a group of of younger white guys. And they, I forgot what rap song they were playing, but, you know, it had the word nigga in it. So they were, you know, mm-hmm. and they were all singing along. And I just looked and, you know, it, while it was, it, as somebody who grew up with hip hop, it was sort of the, um, one of the many signals about how that genre has become you know, more widely accepted in the world as the world's most uh, consumed musical genre. But yet at the same time, there's a part of me that's very protective over the, over certain identities where I don't feel as if people outside, while you can enjoy um, part of a culture, I think there's some arrogance and privilege in assuming that you can be so in on that culture that you can relate to them in the same way that they relate to each other. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. And, and it makes a lot of sense. And I think that 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 people are always testing that. I mean, like you know, and and you know, and, and some people do, and some people don't. Some people right. belong, and some people don't. Belong. I feel like it's tested most frequently with Black culture. Well, you know what I well, mean. Well, that's because well, but part of that is because Black culture is the dominant culture in America, and in music, though, um, though music, it's different. Hip hop exists everywhere, but they sing different things. Like they're they're talking different ways. When you go to you know uh, to South Africa, or you go you know to to Tanzania, the people are doing they're people are doing hip hop, but you know it's 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 purely political. And uh, and there's very little like kind of sex and you know race kind of things in it at all really, you know it's different in different places. But you know, listen, if you if you the the worst thing I think it is is for people is to be completely uh, pressed out of the culture, to to be completely isolated, to be that those people who the only thing you can become is a terrorist. That's that's really when you get you when you go out that far and nobody talks to you and nobody will live with you and nobody will hire you and nobody you know then you know at, at some point or another you're going to explode and we saw that in the sixties we saw it in the sixties and it was a it was an amazing kind of moment you know because because you kind of hated it and you kind of loved it and you kind of said well, well it's kind of violent you know I mean the first riots in L A in sixty three was it sixty three or sixty five sixty five the first riots in L A uh, everybody was shocked. Nobody thought the black people were all that angry. You know, they didn't know, you know, because they were so isolated, you know. And, and you know, as people come together, you know, you, you begin to share things, you know. And, and how, that, how that works, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm happier with the way things are now than I was in the 50s. I'll put it like that. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah, there's a lot of people that would, uh, would certainly co-sign that. Um, I'm I'm certainly not suggesting we go back to the days of oh, separate. Oh no, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah separate yeah. drinking fountains or anything. Yeah. But um, while I like to see the cultural mix, I think and, it's okay to have some respectful boundaries, if you will. Um, but you know, I mean, because again, I'm speaking from a different standpoint where I thought the you know the lines were certainly a lot more um, visible than I think that they are now. Because you know, you see different cultures and they're they're dressing like Snoop and they're just saying all this. And while that part I think is beautiful, I wish that as they're absorbing kind of the cool things about black culture, that they would take some time to learn actually the history of black culture. But I could be asking too much. But but listen, if you ask any American in in this nation to learn any history whatsoever, you'd be asking too much. No America's no history. What's one of the problems with America? Like, we just don't. We don't teach it. We don't know it. We have no respect for it. It's like it, it's true that nobody knows about black history, including black people. 
Uh, but it's also true that nobody knows, like, like you know, so-called white history. I mean, it's just, it's not a, it's not, Americans don't pay any attention to history. It's really hard. There are people who are educated who go to college and who might study African-American history, so they know. Uh, and some of them are white and some of them are black. But I, I want to tell you, even the historically black colleges didn't really start teaching uh, African-American history until the 80s. I mean, before that, they said, what do you want to learn that for? You got to learn something that's going to help you get a job, man. So as all the people, the HBCU grads, we're going to blow up my <laughs> after that, blow up my social media. I was like, hey, look, I didn't say it. <laughs> but there is some evidence. Oh, yeah. Well, like, know it's, it's like, I, I don't think that. anybody would argue against it. You right. know, it's like, you know, because in the in the beginning, you're trying to teach people how to make it in this world. Correct. And this world was a so-called white world. Right. And some a lot of yeah. it was trade-based, yeah. too, as well. Like yeah. Learning something that you could easily but, take out into the world. But if you want to learn a history, mm-hmm. there were there were no black people in history. Like, you know, I mean, there were, and we knew about it, but because nobody else knew about it, they, they said, we, we can't have a, like a course of study on something like that, you know? So, I mean, you, know, you have to, I, I think that it, it's, it's kind of a, everybody has to open up a little bit more and understand things. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in freedom of speech. I like, I really am. You know, and I think, you know, people say things, people believe things, you know, things that I hate. I had a big argument with people. They said, we should outlaw the Confederate flag. And I said, why? I said, well, you know, because, you know, it represents hate and blah, blah, blah. I don't disagree with that. (laughs) But I was saying, but if a guy has the Confederate flag in his head, I don't mind seeing it on the back of his car, too, because at least that warns me about what that guy is thinking. You know, I'd like, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, it's like... You're from the school of, like, I'd rather know what I'm dealing with. Yeah, and, and, and I'm an American. Right. In, in America, you know, we, like, you know, freedom of speech is one of the first things you have in America, you know. Well, you know what they say, freedom of speech, yes, freedom from consequences, Nah, <laughs> you <Well>, know, <laughs> to some. You but know, we, that's but we know that more than anybody, though, right? You know, I mean, honestly, I you, you, I mean, there was a time not that long ago when you just look at somebody and you get killed for it, you know. So yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's a thing that that the, the consequences we've been facing forever, you know, and we and and let and in order to create a world that works for us and our children. We have to really be able to face who we are and what we are and, and what we're doing. You know, I listen, I love hip hop as much as I love the blues. You know, I think, you know, but, you know, if you really listen to the blues, man, they, they say some serious stuff. Robert Johnson has a line in one of his songs where he says, I'm going to beat my woman till I get satisfied. That's like, whoa, man, you know, that's. That's bad. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but you know, but but blues is is also the sense of tragedy of the twentieth century. There's, there's no question about it. No tra- question. And you know, and so what, what you're going to do? I mean, hip hop has the same issues, right? Yeah, the misogyny. Yeah. A lot of you know that was. I think about the songs that I listened to growing up, and. Um, that you know, I mean, to be real, and in moments where I feel, I still listen to those songs. But and like one of my favorite songs, long before Rihanna made it, was AMG's "Bitch Better Have My Money," right? Mm-hmm. And so you play back the lyrics of that, and you know, it's not the most evolved thinking, uh, and as you can tell from the title, but yet it is representative of the era and the time that I grew up in. And so I still remain sort of an emotional attachment. Well, yeah, because it's 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 in your heart. It's but, in my heart. Yeah, but you know, like. Uh, I heard an uh, interview with Johnny Cash once. Maybe you've heard heard it. Uh, uh, some you know, redneck guys interviewing Cash and saying, "Well, what do you think about this terrible, awful uh, uh, hip hop rap music? They talk about violence and murder and rape and 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 Cash said, "Look, I wrote a song in which I said I sang, I killed a man just to see him die." He said, "Is that any different?" And like that was the end of that interview. They they just stopped. But it was like it was great, you know, because but it, it's it's you know it's cross pollination, you know. But you have to be free to to talk, and if you're going to have that kind of cross pollination, you know, which you know which it, which is true in the blues, it's true in in, uh, in hip hop. Certainly, one has to you know talk about respecting race, respecting gender, respecting all kinds of stuff. But at the same time, you got to get there. There's, there's a struggle to get there to say, I'm telling you this is right and you're going to do it. That's never going to work. 
See, this is why you're an excellent author because you can make the craziest things seem quite reasonable. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is exactly why you've been so successful for so many years. I'm going to put a pin on this and take a quick break. And when we come back, I just want to get your top five authors. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a second to think about this. Um, so before we wrap up with a top five, because for some reason I'm obsessed with these. So we'll see you guys on the other side. All right, back with Walter Mosley, and I'm not going to let him escape this podcast without asking him who his top five authors are. Because whatever, I think I'm going to make this a thing, that whatever field you represent, I'm going to ask you your top five. So I just thought of that on the spot. And of course, I just love to hear uh, who other people who are so good at what they do, what they enjoy, what they love, and what they consider to be great work. So Walter Mosley, you're on the spot now, your top five authors. I love science fiction, and the greatest writer of science fiction ever in English is a, a black gay man named Samuel Delaney, Chip Delaney. He's really, his books, Dahlgren, Nova, Babel 17, they're like extraordinary books. And he's like an extraordinary writer, really and then they found out one day that he was black and he was gay and they stopped distributing his books. I mean, they were making money on his books and they stopped. It was just so crazy. Gabriel Garcia Marquez and uh, 100 Years of Solitude, you know, it's just this, I don't know, I just loved that book to death. It was like, it was so, it was so great. That's two. So no, you got three more slots to go. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I know, you know, it, 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 it's uh, for, for reasons that are particularly my own, Langston News. I don't want to say that most uh, black writers in America and any other kind of writers in America don't write about black male heroes. They just don't. Like, there are no black male... They're black male protagonists all through, you know, Baldwin and, and Wright and all those other people. But to have heroes, it's so rare. Uh, and Langston Hughes, had, you know, when, with his simple... His, his, that streak of simple stories, he was a hero. He was the everyman. He was, he was the guy who represented us. He's the guy who said, yeah, I know him. A man would say, well, I want to play cards with him. One would say, I want to go out with him, you know? You know, I'm, I'm not going to bring my money with him. I'm going to go out with him, you know? And so that's, that's the thing. You know, Zora Neale Hurston has to be there because Zora Neale Hurston uh, understood what made us tick. Mm. And, and that's I, my favorite book of all time. Is their eyes are watching their, God? Their eyes watching God, yeah. 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 And she's, a, she's an extraordinary writer, thinker, scientist, uh, you know. Um, and then, you know, at the, at the end, end of the thing, because, you know, I, I, I learned to love literature through comic books, I, I would say Jack Kirby. And which is interesting, because Jack Kirby was an artist, not a writer, but he told stories through pictures, which, you know, uh, which partly is that, that kind of connecting to film. Uh, and, and it was, and it's, and it's a way, it's a way of thinking, I can do anything. I can think anything. I can make anything. I can say anything, you know, and, you know, being a writer, that's, I think he gave me that freedom. You have a guilty pleasure author. I mean, somebody that. You mean some pornographic? Uh, <laughs> Wait, would be they if that's your thing? I mean, like for a while, Eric Jerome Dickey was like a guilty pleasure author that oh, I would he's read. He's such a nice guy. You meet him? I've never met him, yeah, but you, that was a like guilty him. pleasure. Yeah. That uh, and also, I think those Zane books. <laughs> like I, I read a couple of those. I was like, oh, this is. I compare that to like say going to see John Wick. Right? It's like they're not. You're not supposed to think about them a long time, and they're just light entertainment, and that's kind of it. But. um yeah, because depending on my mood, sometimes I like to read something heavy and nonfiction, and sometimes I don't, you know, so I'll, I'd like to run the gamut. Yeah. But do you have any uh, guilty pleasure reads? Well, I, I didn't hear a, a guilty pleasure from you already. Uh, so. <laughs> well, some consider saying like, that. Like, yeah. huh? They would? You they know, would you consider should, that. You should read a book of mine called uh, Killing Johnny Fry. And you'll say, oh, Zane? She's like, anyway. Um, <laughs> no. No, nothing. I'm not guilty. Okay, so you're like, you're, I'm not going to be shamed guilty. by whatever it like, is. Yeah. That I mean, I when I was a kid, boy, listen, to admit like, like, like a comic book 
writer is one of your like major writers like from where i come from that would be the worst thing my if i was if i was my father's life he'd probably hit me when i walked out of here and say you better not say anything about no comic books what's wrong with you you know that i so yes. some of the greatest storytelling. I mean, that's also how I developed a love of literature is through through comic books. Right? Yeah. Avengers, Red, Silver Surfer was my favorite. I love oh, somebody yeah. brooding and mad and surfing the galaxy. That was <laughs> you know. But you know the thing is, is when uh, the, uh, Stanley, you know, would tell the main story. It's like Galactus mm-hmm. is coming to Earth and to take over Earth, and so Jack Kirby drew the comic book, and and go, and, and Stanley says. Well, What's this white guy on the surfboard in the sky? He said, I don't know. It just it just seemed like if Galactus would, you know, he wouldn't just do the, the dirty work, so he would send somebody else. So I, I created the Silver Surfer. Like, it just came out of nowhere. My pocket protector just came out. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I feel like I just went next level uh, comic nerdery. But no, that's a, that's a good perspective to have. Um, listen, I could keep you here all day to discuss novels and literature. Um, but I just want to thank you, not just for spending time with me today on this podcast, but just what you've contributed um, to the culture and for a writer uh, like me who has um, read your books and know that if I can write one page as well as you could write, then I will have made it in my own mind. So thank you for everything you've done and for the young writers like me out there still comparing uh, uh, writing to childbirth. Now you've helped me see it in a different way. See, maybe it'll be easier if I think of it as sex. Maybe it'll be easier now. That's right. So you've given me something to think about there. So thank you, Walter, for joining me. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. All right, we're not done here yet. Coming up next, you know how we end the show. It's time for a little bit of Fuck It, I'm Bothered. So I'm one of those people who was kind of late to the whole airdrop thing. But now that I'm up on it, I'm like all in. I love me some airdrop. You know, it's great to use during group trips or outings where you don't feel like giving out your phone number to 5011 people. Um, So my airdrop settings are fully open. They are not set to contacts only. And little did I know that by having an open airdrop, it can lead to some absolute foolishness. So fuck it, I'm bothered by the unknown person who recently airdropped me some shit that I really and truly did not need to see. Now, I attended this conference in Aspen recently. I was in a bar with another conference goer when suddenly I see Abigail's iPhone is airdropping me something. This person, Abigail, uh, in fact, was somebody I didn't know. I don't know who the fuck Abigail is. What I do know now, thanks to airdrop, is that Abigail was Googling, is it normal for a penis to be curved and what causes it? Because Abigail airdropped me a screenshot of her Google search, which indeed had a picture of a curved Captain Winky. Get it how you live, Abigail. If you're into the curved thing, I am not here to judge. But I am judging your trifling ass for sending something like that through airdrop. That is a direct number situation, Abigail. Nasty ass. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hold up. 